and welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our loved radio syndicate partners or on the Green Majority podcast. My name is David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter and Lauren Latour. How are you doing? Very good. And uh, today we're going to discuss the Mi'kmaq fishery in Nova Scotia, the Six Nations protests, blockades, occupation in uh, near Caledonia, Ontario, various First Nations struggles against this continuing uh, colonial state, and uh, global oil demand, which uh, Stefan uh, is salivating over the peak of. And uh, he will be interviewing uh, Melanie Howe of Water Docks. All right, so let's begin. On uh, September 17th, 1999, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that it was legal for Mi'kmaq fishers to fish outside of the official regulated season, which in southwestern Nova Scotia runs from late November through late May. The 1999 ruling cited the Peace and Friendship Treaties from the early 1760s and declared that the Mi'kmaq and Maliseet First Nations in New Brunswick, PEI, Nova Scotia, and Gaspé could hunt, fish, and gather whenever they wanted, so long as it was in pursuit of a moderate livelihood. This moderate livelihood is an ill-defined term, meaning something like subsistence trading as opposed to open-ended profiteering. The term moderate livelihood has not been strictly defined by any official body in the 21 years that have passed since the Supreme Court decision, and it remains in a vague legal area, suggesting that the relevant First Nations can regulate themselves, but also that the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, or DFO, can regulate them as well, provided the Department consults with the First Nations and gives proper justification. Non-Indigenous fishers have been trying to stop the Mi'kmaq from asserting their fishing rights ever since they won in the courts in 1999, often through violent intimidation and the destruction of their fishing gear, and the weakness of the official language and the general racism of the system has meant that Mi'kmaq fishers have had their equipment confiscated by the DFO for fishing outside the legal season, even though they have every right to do so. As a result of this confusion, Mi'kmaq fishers had not set up any fishery of their own until this year, 21 years after their treaty rights had been officially recognized. Instead of waiting endlessly for differing opinions to be resolved by bureaucratic bodies, the Sibignagadi First Nation, the second largest Mi'kmaq band in Nova Scotia, finally opened the first of its kind self-regulated lobster fishery on September 17, 2020, the 21st anniversary of the Supreme Court decision. They have since granted licenses for catching and selling and have been operating under their own conservation plan to ensure lobster populations will not be depleted. The Mi'kmaq still require the province to officially allow them to legally sell their catch to non-Indigenous buyers, though the province says it needs clarification from the feds on what a moderate livelihood means before it can change its regulations. The Mi'kmaq community in Nova Scotia, for its part, has already introduced its own regulations for the legal sale of seafood harvested under the new fishery to whomever wants to buy it. The Listigouge Mi'kmaq First Nation in Quebec has had similar legal confusions since operating their first since opening their first self-regulated fishery in 2019. 
Sibignagadic chief Michael Sack was quoted by the CBC on the 25th of September as saying, quote, We already gave up 21 years of lost income, the betterment of life for our people. At this point in time, we're not here to negotiate. We just, we're just here to make our plan official and get moving and growing in the lobster industry. A statement of solidarity from the Union of BC Indian Chiefs released on the 15th of October reads, quote, The Mi'kmaq people have been forced to wait more than 20 years for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans to adequately implement the 1999 Supreme Court of Canada decision in R.V. Marshall, which affirms Mi'kmaq treaty rights to the fishery, as well as a commercial right to generating a moderate livelihood through the fishery. The lobster export industry in Nova Scotia was worth a total of $1.2 billion in 2019, but the lockdowns from the coronavirus have hurt the industry in 2020. Mi'kmaq fishers exercising their treaty rights will probably begin opening their own processing facilities and entering the export market as well. Part of the reason why the DFO has been operating in defiance of official treaty rights is because of their failure to properly regulate East Coast fishing in the first place. And this anxiety around the conservation of fish stocks is also part of the reason why non-Indigenous fishers have been terrorizing the new Mi'kmaq fishery since it opened just a few weeks ago. On the day of the Sibignagadi Moderate Livelihood Fishery opened last month, the day that it opened, around 50 non-Indigenous lobster boats circled the first Mi'kmaq boats, threatened to cut their boys, shot flare guns at them, and tried to chase them off the water. After other reports of stolen or damaged traps, the federal government released a statement in support of those exercising their treaty rights. Then in the early hours of the 5th of October, a lobster boat owned by Mi'kmaq fisher Robert Silliboy was destroyed by fire. Tensions and intimidation continued, and October 13th, on October 13th, two Mi'kmaq fishermen, one of them named Jason Marr, were hounded by a mob of 200 non-Indigenous fishers who set fire to a van owned by Marr, stole almost all of the 5,000 pounds of lobster he had caught, and poisoned the rest. Marr had been allowed by the pound's owner to bring his catch there to prevent it from being stolen and released by just such an angry mob, But he was followed to the pound, and the two Mi'kmaq fishers were eventually forced out by the RCMP, who claimed the owner of the pound did not want them there, and the mob was allowed to take the lobster. One man ended up being charged by police for setting fire to the van. A similar mob also descended on a different pound on the same day, terrorizing workers and vandalizing another vehicle. The police, who were outnumbered by the mob and merely watched as the lobsters were stolen, have said that the governments involved need to solve the issue and that it's not their fault that any of this happened. Sibignagadi chief Michael Sack has said that the Mi'kmaq are being forced to fight for what's already theirs and that if it was 200 indigenous people stealing lobsters and destroying property, then it would be a totally different story. The day after the incidents at the lobster pounds, Michael Sack was himself physically assaulted by a 46-year-old white Nova Scotian man who has since been charged. Justin Trudeau spoke on the issue on the 15th and 16th, saying that the RCMP have to do their job and that the treaty rights need to be upheld, but also, in sublime Trudeau style, that the solution must fit, quote, within an important commercial activity in the Maritimes that is fishing. 
Mi'kmaq warrior peacekeepers, who often show up to keep the peace when racist violence gets out of hand, arrived in the area of southwestern Nova Scotia on the evening of the 13th to protect the Mi'kmaq fishers, who, in the grand scheme, collectively represent a very tiny operation. On the 16th of October, Joel Camo, the vice president of the local nine of the Maritime Fishermen's Union, who has been friendly with Chief Michael Sack, had his discussions with Sack shut down by higher-ups in the industry, and at the same time resigned from his position at the union because his friends and family have been intimidated and threatened multiple times by angry commercial fishers. He told the CBC, quote, I've been followed right to my house with my family in the truck at 7 o'clock in the morning and people with tinted windows sitting across my driveway. This community is out of hand. This community feels unsafe. Some of Camo's friends, meanwhile, had to be escorted out of a restaurant by police for their protection. Camo, of course, uh, remains sympathetic towards the uh, fishers, who are his kin. Um, and he has also said that it is up to the DFO and Bernadette Jordan, the Minister of Fishers, Oceans, and the Canadian Coast Guard, to clearly define what is legal and what is not. In the most recent incident of anti-Indigenous terrorism in Nova Scotia as of this recording, one of the lobster pounds that was targeted by the mob on the 13th was burned to the ground in the early morning of the 17th, and the main suspect in the arson seems to have been badly injured in the blaze. Chief Michael Sack told the CBC after the blaze, quote, We're blown away by how things are evolving here. The commercial fishermen have a couple of bad people guiding them through these dangerous acts, and I'm still calling on the Prime Minister to step in and make sure safety is ensured. Obviously, whatever they're trying to do is not working, and it's unfortunate. We all know that if the shoe was on the other foot, the National Guard would be here. I'm not sure why our lives are less valuable than anyone else. The commercial fishermen need to believe that we're there to make sure the lobster will always be there for seven generations to come, and in time we will fully divulge our plan to them and make them comfortable with it. They have people that are badly influencing them, and they're turning on their own people. There's no room in this world for hate. We're all in some tough times, and I just wish them all well. It's horrible all the way around. Our people are refused fuel, traps, gear, bait. Everyone that we worked with are all turning their back on us because of fear for their life and their business. He added that we all need love, not hate, and that they are willing to do a joint study with the DFO to ensure the lobsters won't be depleted. At least one research body has so far said that the stocks will not be harmed by the fishing. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has said the terrorism is a result of systemic racism and has nothing to do with conservation, and a, new federal cabinet and a few federal cabinet members have called for an emergency debate. A Mi'kmaq camp has been set up to support the fishers and keep the peace, while support for the Mi'kmaq has been coming from around the province and the country at large, with protests and blockades from other First Nations and settler allies. If you're listening to this on Friday the 23rd, all I know is there are at least rallies uh, tomorrow in Vancouver and Calgary. Sibignagadic Chief Michael Sack was to appear before the House of Commons on the day of this recording. Finally, the Star reported on the 20th that the DFO is cracking down on the modest livelihood fishery launched on the 1st of October by the Potlatek First Nation in Cape Breton. 
And that fishery that the DFO is cracking down on is the second of its kind in the province after the one just discussed. One additional and and positive update uh, on this story occurred today when we record this, which is which is Wednesday the twenty first, which is that a Nova Scotia Supreme Court judge has just issued a temporary court injunction to end the blockades, interference, and threats against the Sepinakic van members uh, who are doing the lobster fishing in southeast no- southwest Nova Scotia, and so that should at least uh, in some ways hopefully push the RCMP to to do more uh, in regards to their efforts in, in actually protecting uh, the, the indigenous community there. Um, but ultimately, it has to, uh, to me, it has to, this has to be seen as a pretty cataclysmic failure of the liberal government to have allowed it to get, you know, to the point of, you know, having, you know, the, having these things burned to the ground. You know, liberals hold 10 of the 11 seats in Nova Scotia, and the, and the federal government has a responsibility to hold up and protect the agreements that were set out in these treaties that govern this land. You know, and so when you hear about the RCMP standing around or basically saying that there are you know, good people on both sides, it's not our exact quote, obviously, uh, but what we're actually seeing is that there's all, is all the ongoing proof that the colonial police state remains bound to uphold not the rule of law, but rather the white supremacist systems that have been built to invalidate these original agreements. Because, you know, ultimately, this is a question in a, in a conversation to be held about what the treaties were agreed upon and what, and what, they, what they denote. And so consistently, as we've seen in this case, and as we, we, we obviously see uh, in Wet'suwet'en and in other places across, across you know, across this so-called Canada, is that while the colonial government takes its never-ending amounts of time to decide what, you know, and have things go through the courts, or, or they release sort of a vague, a, 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 a vague agreement or a vague understanding, and then what that does is it, they're basically requiring these indigenous groups to to wait until they until the speed of nothing. Like there's no there's no urgency from the side of the of the Canadian state to actually address these questions or to actually be able to, you know, do these kinds of the kind of work to set out what you know what who like you know in in this case what does this you know this this what does it mean about a moderate livelihood. And in Wet'suwet'en's case, you know, who, who, and how does does the do the how do the um, the hereditary chiefs sort of you know have you know what does their control of their ancestral territory look like? And in both these cases, you know, were 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 came out of a colonial system that uh, that laws that they agreed on what they should look like, but then. They've basically delayed doing any further extra work, allowing for these situations to get more tense and more difficult. While you know, basically, while the while the settlers continue to make money and continue to sort of further profit off off the sake of the land. And so, to me, like this is the central work. Like we have to actually start. We, as in the central state, have to start actually doing stuff, stepping up to plate, and actually doing this work, rather than always leaving it at the doorsteps of these nations to decide to 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 litigate and, and and force the issue every time because 
Yeah, that's just it's well, it's 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 deeply unfair, uh, and it's a way to maintain power uh, in this already unjust system. Uh, but to you, Lauren. Yeah. Um, thank you both for for all that information. Those were really good explainers. Um, I think there's a there's a lot to be really angry about and to be really upset about with this specific um, case and as it's as it's playing out on the East Coast. Uh, something that hasn't been discussed quite as much. Um, that I would like to just sort of really briefly draw listeners' attention to is um, kind of the main company at the heart of this. Yes, obviously, sort of like the main offender here is the federal and the provincial governments for not uh, responding faster to the RCMP, for not just like protecting people when their property is being damaged and when their lives are being threatened, and um, and and the DFO for not sort of specifying 21 years ago what a moderate livelihood looks like and sort of developing that co-management plan with the Mi'kmaq. Again, 21 years ago when the Supreme Court decided in favor of the Mi'kmaq having um, ancestral and territorial fishing rights here. But um, but anyway, the, the company I sort of want to draw attention to is is Clearwater Foods. Um, they within this sort of St. Mary's Bay where this conflict is is largely being carried out. Um, they're the they're one of the main, if not the main, um, company that is fishing and 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 catching and harvesting lobster from this area. Um, and to just sort of put things in perspective for anybody who might be concerned that like, oh, if, if more fishing licenses are given out, then that's not great for the lobster population. <laughs> the Mi'kmaq who are looking to make, again, that phrase moderate livelihood, although that hasn't been necessarily defined by the DFO yet, but it, it, it's, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what companies like Clearwater Foods are doing in this area. Um, the Mi'kmaq Nation, sort of at the heart of this, um, earlier this year when, when they decided to, to fish as is their right, for, for kind of the first time this year, um, they only gave out five licenses within their nation. And each of those licenses, those fishers are, are limited to the use of only 50 traps, pairing that in contrast to non-native licenses of which there are nearly a thousand in the area. There are 985 non-native licenses that are currently issued with each fisher being permitted up to 400 traps in the same area um, that can be dropped and pulled up within a 72 hour period, I believe. Adding on top of this, looking at Clearwater Foods specifically, um, they have something like 6,500 traps, um, which is far above the 400 and obviously way far above the 50 that, that Mi'kmaq fishers are, are currently allowing themselves right now. Um, so, so Clearwater really is sort of at, at the heart of this and we need to be condemning them for their actions or their inaction because they aren't... It, it's their fishers who are being really, really hostile to the Mi'kmaq right now. And, and we haven't been seeing the type of action that this company needs to be taking to indicate that they really and truly do respect the rights of Mi'kmaq fishers in this area. Um, and also, if again, if people are concerned with conservation, um, with, with lobster and other fish in this area, it's, it's clear water that we need to be looking to and clear water that we need to be critical of and condemning. Um, Add on top of this, sorry, I'm just, I'm going down through my bullet points right now. Um, whereas the DFO only allows uh, regulated owner operator fishers, the ones that have a max of, of 400 traps, they can only fish during a set season. Clearwater fishes year round. So again, it's this one company that has virtually a monopoly on this area. Um, and not only is that likely harmful to the ecosystem in the area, they haven't been uh, 
operating in a way that's respectful of the Mi'kmaq. They haven't been coming up to their defense and they've been allowing their staff and their fishers to be openly hostile um, to, to, to the indigenous fishers in this area. That's a, I, I, I didn't know, I didn't, I hadn't, the, the piece that I had not heard yet was the fact that they're able to fish year round, uh, which just goes to show you sort of some of the, the, the way that this is always ends up being, I think, tied into the fact that, you know, if you have enough money or power, you can get around the, the rules that then are trying to be enforced on other people. You know, the, the fact that we're able, we can decide that this one fishery is able to do, you know, to basically fish you around because of, you know, their, their, their power and status and size that, like in like and yet and yet you know there's this sort of blowback when anyone else wants to do it sort of you know it it really exemplifies the the nature of you know how much money speaks almost absolutely and, and I mean obviously that's an issue literally everywhere in the Western world it's it's an issue that's that is endemic to capitalism but um, it especially I don't know it just always seems to be kind of magnified in these maritime and East Coast regions when you've got companies like Clearwater or companies like McCain or companies and families like the Irvings you've got you've got these small populations in these provinces and these regions that have been that have been so plagued by economic uncertainty um, and sort of the boom bust cycle of resource extraction in the past and and it's and it's I don't know if it's a combination of, of fear that if these companies aren't sort of given free reign that they'll pull out from the regions and then people will be left more economically um, uh, worse off or 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 if it's just that these that these companies are related to families that are already um i don't know in 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 such positions of power that they kind of can run amok and do what they want but it i don't know it does seem to be a, an issue that is not unique to the maritimes obviously but um i don't know thrown into relief in the maritimes if nothing else There have been demonstrations in various provinces this month in support of the Haudenosaunee Six Nations members who are occupying the site of a residential complex being built on their territory in uh, southern Ontario near Caledonia. The protests represent just the latest in the slow genocidal land theft that has been happening in the area for over 200 years. As Amanda Follett-Hosgood reported for the Taiyi on the 10th of October, quote, the Haudenosaunee have been occupying a parcel, a parcel of land on their, on their traditional territory next to the Six Nations of the Grand River Reserve in Caledonia, Ontario, since July. The occupation is known as 1492 Landback Lane, a reference to the year Christopher Columbus landed in the Americas. APTN gives a rough timeline of the land in question, beginning in 1784, when the governor of Quebec gave the Six Nations 950,000 acres of land that Quebec had gotten from the Mississauga. That huge tract of land was then slowly annexed by white squatters with the support of the British colonial governments and the Crown. Legal finagling and capitalist land grabs also ensued, whittling the territory down to a small piece of what it originally was. It's another example of the gradual, legalized appropriation of indigenous land by capitalist interests that has happened all over this country, and has come to a head again in recent weeks with this occupation of the development site 
and various arrests. Six Nations Haudenosaunee also recently held a rolling blockade along the highway between Caledonia and Stony Creek in support of the Mi'kmaq fishers. The whole colonial project you know, has been one of systematically removing more land from indigenous peoples uh, you know, over time, uh, which is why I think a pillar and likely the most important pillar of any real efforts towards reconciliation must be you know, what is going by the hashtag land back. And I, I don't know if I mentioned on the show previously, but I think it's quite important and valuable that if people want to learn more about sort of what is meant by land back and in the way that it is growing to a pretty powerful movement, I highly recommend the Briar Patch. It's a magazine that comes out of the, uh, comes out of the, the prairies. They did a special edition in September on entirely on land back. And it's incredible. I really recommend it. And in regards to, in regards to this sort of particular issue, you know, it's, it's it as as you mentioned in the in the intro, Dave. You know, this is yet another example of just taking more land because you decide you can take more land, right? There, it's this it's this constant decision that, and in many ways, the the expansion into the, into into the indigenous territories of this nature for you know housing basically, or you know for another development, is is especially egregious given the the never-ending sprawl that that we seem still tied to in this world, despite the fact that it is almost certainly going to be one of the things that will end up killing us. You know, if we can't get, if we cannot get sprawl uh, under control, it is going to lock us into types of worlds that are, you know, deeply unequal and likely and, and, and very carbon intensive. And so, you know, this is yet another example of these, of the of the colonial project being tapped and tied into the capitalist uh, system we have, and you know both of them sort of wrecking havoc on on both you know the people who are living there and have lived there for hundreds of thousands of years and the land itself. Uh, but to you, Lauren. Um, yeah, well, as somebody who comes from the sort of five one nine region of southwestern Ontario, where this is all happening, if if nothing else, I can absolutely affirm that like this does come down. Well, there's a lot of issues sort of at the root of this, but like, yeah, one of them and one that we need to continue to talk about is that sort of the never ending saga of sprawl that plagues Southwestern Ontario. Um, There's a whole lot of houses going up constantly in otherwise sort of farmland or forested, or in this case, indigenous land areas. Um, and, And to be honest, again, as somebody from that region, I don't know who's buying these homes, but anyway, that's sort of, sort of ultimately beside the point. Um, what we're seeing here and, and what we're seeing in McMoggy and, and in other places that we're going to, I know, I know we're going to talk about next. Um, it's sort of, it, what it all comes down to is that this is supposed to be a government that we've talked about has time and time again, expressed, um, a desire to treat indigenous peoples and indigenous nations with with respect and what i really really need to see from the liberal government right now um is go it goes beyond statements of support from trudeau or in the case of 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 out of out east the dfo or minister bernadette jordan when we see these conflicts and these attacks being carried out against indigenous peoples across like quote unquote like canada the colonial nation what it indicates is a, is, is a need for federal and provincial governments to like really, really reckon with what it means to respect indigenous sovereignty and respect treaty rights 
and 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 we need to see the federal government start to approach these issues really through that nation to nation lens that they claim to be using all the time. And we need to start to see them treat indigenous nations as they would any other, um, or, or like approach the discourse there as they would any other international discourse or any other negotiation. Um, and, 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 and that means we need to see that affect the ways in which policy is written, the ways policy is carried out and, and enforced, uh, and it needs to change writ large. And until these things happen, we're going to continue to see conflicts like this, and we're going to continue to see these terrorist attacks. We're going to continue to see colonial police forces like the RCMP inflicting violence on undeserving peoples. Um, so it's it's... We, we talk about these things because they're related to climate, because they're related to climate justice, and because they're all intersected. This isn't just a case of one developer encroaching on Indigenous land. This isn't just a case of one company like Clearwater in, infringing on the rights of, of Mi'kmaq fishers. This is, this is systemic, and it's because for the longest time, um, the government hasn't sort of responded to calls for Indigenous sovereignty in a holistic way that we really need to see them respond. We, we know from at least the case in Mi'kmaq that, and in Mi'kma'ki that, that they've had 21 years, for instance, to pass, to pass policy in line with what the Supreme Court um, judged or, or in, in, in a sense, yeah, with, with the Supreme Court case from 1999 and they haven't done it. And I mean, the response can either be piecemeal or it can be uh, writ large and holistic and overarching. And, and I think it's, it's been too long and too many people have come under, under extreme duress and extreme harm. And, and we need to see more than just tweets and statements of support. And we need to actually see like large overarching change at a policy level and at a legislative level. Yeah, I, I think I, I, before I throw it to Dave for the, the last little the bit of news in this, uh, this part of the segment, I, I think it's, you're spot on to point out the fact that what is what we're missing and what was required really is proactive efforts from you know from our government. For too long have we seen basically the you know the federal and provincial governments being very very willing to be incredibly reactive and very slow, and all of that is is, is only feeding and making the problem the the, the problems worse and and, and further. Uh, creating injustice that on that was already you know layered on top of the you know the systemic uh, genocide that was preparated is perpetuated, and so yeah yeah to me I think that's that has to be a part of the, this question is you have to actually do proactive and 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 you know and do the work which we're just not seeing. Continuing on with just a few more stories thrown together here. A third massive landfill from the De Beers Diamond Mine could soon be imposed on a fragile wetland area belonging to the Ottawapiskat First Nation. It's recently come to light that the RCMP spent over $13 million supporting Coastal Gaslink in policing the Wet'suwet'en, who are still in active opposition to the liquid natural gas pipeline uh, going through their territory in northern B.C., Five people, including a Sequempunk hereditary chief, were arrested on the 16th of October in opposition to the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline in Kamloops, B.C., and the Ontario government has been ignoring its own advice of not forcing First Nations communities to the consultation table during the pandemic by trying to force consultation with Neskintaga uh, over mining development in Ontario's Ring of Fire. Up to 175 Neskintaga members, meanwhile, 
could be evacuated to Thunder Bay, as they have had no running water now for days on end. Very quickly, for me, the one thing that stands out here is the fact that the RCMP can find $13 million to support Coastal Gaslink, and yet seemingly have, you know, I believe the quote that came out about when people asked why the fisheries weren't protected in Nova Scotia was the it was basically pushing back to the question at all. And their, I, their answer was something along the lines of, well, you expect us to be everywhere? Like, that, if that, you know, there's a level of priorities there that, that speaks volumes. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of money that could be uh, spent better. Um, so whoever is determining budgets at the RCMP, I don't, I, I don't know. I feel like I would like to see, I don't know, a memo on your thought process or on your allocation, something like that would be cool. But, um, but no, I, I would encourage listeners. We, we try our best to put together a, like a well-informed show here. David does a ton of research. Stefan and I kind of pontificate and provide commentary as best we can. But um, there's a lot of really, really good sources for information out there. And this isn't discounting mainstream sources. This isn't discounting the CBC or the Globe or anything like that. They, they obviously, they provide really, really good information. But for listeners that, that do want to know more about these issues and do want to get like a really solid understanding of what's happening here and from a variety of places, um, I would point, your, point you towards APTN. APTN is fantastic. That's the Aboriginal People's television network they always provide really good information you know uh here at green majority we love the national observer and their whole team is really great um like stefan mentioned earlier briar patch did a fantastic issue on land back a few months ago they did a fantastic issue on green new deal and green recovery and stuff like that so they're always coming out with really thoughtful really well researched pieces from a from from people with a large variety of backgrounds so you're really getting um, you're, you're not just getting white settler colonial news. You're getting you're getting things that come from a really critical lens of analysis. Um, and then and then specifically, if you're looking for more news out of what's coming from McMoggy, uh, there's the Nova Scotia Advocate. Um, would also point you towards like things like the Halifax Media Co-op or or the Media Co-op wherever it is you live for for local news. And um, and I believe somewhat new out on the East Coast as well is is, is Cuckoo Quest News, which is uh, an independent Indigenous news source as well. So there's lots of places you can be getting really really good information beyond just listening to us chat your ear off for an hour every friday though though we do appreciate your listenership man we be making all this money yeah on the like this yeah a lot of teachers too so i wouldn't have to go to school no more and now we are briefly going to talk about this article i read online and uh, Stefan has something else to add <laughs> You really managed to make eye politics sound like it's just some random blog. Right, so like, that was also like a pretty accurate description of the show. Some article <laughs> we found online. Plus, <laughs> Welcome to the Green Majority. So, this is what we do here. An article from Environmental Defense's Keith Brooks was published this week in iPolitics.ca, arguing that Canada's oil lobby is going to drag our country down with it by ensuring our continued dependence on a resource that will have, be, that will have to become obsolete, uh, especially in Canada, if we are to prevent catastrophic global warming. He writes, quote, The production of oil and gas is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in Canada, and it has been the fastest growing source of emissions in this country, almost doubling since 1990. Since Canadian oil is 70% more carbon intensive than the global average, 
Canadian oil will be among the first to disappear as the world moves on from fossil fuels. But the oil lobby is still successfully making any oil sands phase-out an impossible political topic in this country. Even though Canadian workers will be the ones left behind by the inevitable disappearance of the Canadian oil industry, which has been declining for years and has been hurt especially by the oil price collapse that began just prior to the pandemic, that has made change even more urgent. Brooks also points out that the, quote, Canadian oil and gas companies in Alberta owe municipalities nearly $200 million in property taxes. Also that they're leaving the public to pay for the cleanup of abandoned wells, and even though oil sands production increased by 75% from 2015 to 2019, royalties and tax revenue fell by over a half. So it may come as a shock to absolutely no one that I generally agree uh, with with Keith Brooks and and would only add a some some other information here there's actually a slew of articles that recently have come out discussing you know how close we might be to peak oil and even how close we might be to peak emissions there was some conversation quite recently about the concept that potentially 2019 might prove to be uh, the the peak emissions per year obviously not peak emissions total because it is cumulative but but per year, you know, it had been sort of centering and sort of hiving off in the fact that COVID has, has done a number on the, the aviation industry specifically, you might actually see that that could be the beginning of a, of a downturn. And this, in the International Energy Agency has a couple different examples that they just released uh, talking about what it might look like. And some of them sort of say that if there is a pretty significant bounce back towards uh, regular sort of global economy without really any change, you'd pr- you, you would likely see that peak uh, oil would hit into the 2030s. Uh, and, but on the other hand, if there's a surge in clean energy policies that you know, groups around, uh, around the world have been calling for, and also, of course, the, with the new ambitions that come out of the, the updated Paris, Paris numbers, uh, the, you could see it happening as early as the next couple of years. And that where we hit peak oil and begin go down again, and you know both of those happen to be well earlier than when we expect to still be running the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which we seem so desperate to still build. And so, you know, to me, I, I don't see how you how you look at Canada and you look at the, how the world's responding to the oil that that exists in Canada and think that we are not at the risk of becoming you know, a, a nation that, that is still trying to make money off a dying industry. I, I, I just don't see how you can't at least accept that as a possibility. Totally. Um, and how much of a bummer that is. <laughs> but uh, but I, I also read that same piece from The Globe about, about the International Energy Agency and the work that they put out this week. And there was a specific, again, none of this is, is anything that like hasn't been said before, but it always bears repeating. And it was something that, um, a gentleman who's associated with the IEA. I cannot remember his name. He's a fancy man doing policy work in Paris. So I apologize for not remembering your name. Fancy Parisian man. But he said, only profound changes guided by good policies can deliver a better energy future. It will not happen by itself if everything is left to the markets. And again, we know this, but it bears repeating over and over and over again that there is still time left to to save us from the perils of climate change 
at least a lot of people in a lot of places. But none of that's going to happen unless we have like strong regulations and ambitious policy and leadership at community and municipal levels and government intervention at like every jurisdictional level and in every sector. And we also need to see like, yeah, things like legally binding targets, legislated milestones, subnational carbon budgets. But like those are, those are like some of the specifics. Um, but just that like, there is still amongst a, a decent portion of the political class and amongst a, like a lot of leadership in sort of more like neoliberal circles that like the markets can save us, the markets will determine how we act and when it's time to do things. And that is simply not the case. The only way that we are going to save as many people as possible and as many ecosystems and regions and habitats and homes and livelihoods is if we take really, really ambitious regulatory um, moves and really rapidly. And again, while also building up like community level support and adaptation and mitigation and loss and damage and stuff like that for sure um kind of related to this wilkinson has said uh, that's that's minister wilkinson has said um in a recent mclean's interview a couple weeks ago that like we should be expecting a new climate plan for canada by the end of this year hopefully so that will include new ndcs new targets potentially some some ambitious uh, some um accountability legislation so there's there is new stuff for Canada from a regulatory standpoint coming down the pipe. And he didn't promise it by the end of this year, but he said he would like to see it by the end of this year. So like cross our fingers there, give him a call if he's your MP, give him a bit of a push there. Um, because this new policy and plan that's gonna come out will really, will obviously it'll determine how we move forward and we'll be able to see how many of those election promises are actually gonna bear fruit and whether or not Canada will remain in the International Energy Agency's good books as that Globe and Mail article put it, which kind of took me aback for a moment, but hey. They just have low bars in the International Legends <laughs> Agency, I think. Uh, but yeah, I, I, the one thing I'll say before we, we go to Reagan come back with the interview is that I like the piece where Minister Wilkinson, the minister who is definitely in charge of creating these standards, says he would like to see it. I, I want to go into work tomorrow and just tell my boss I would like to see my work done by the end of this week and and just presume that's fine. Right? Like, oh, it'd be good, but I can't make any promises. It's like, it's literally your job and your mandate and you get to make that call. So yeah, you could do this. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's like the liberals, it's like the liberals with everything. It's like Trudeau showing up to a climate march and being like, oh, we really do need to do better, don't we, guys? Yeah. Like, that's your job, sir. Yeah, this is you. I feel pretty, oh so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and bright. And I pity any girl who isn't me tonight. Uh, I am uh, very happy to be joined by Melanie Howe, the lead programmer and festival manager of the Water Dogs Film Festival, which is coming up uh, in just under two weeks now. Uh, so, can, but for those who have not heard of Water Docs, uh, can you sort of, uh, Melanie, tell us what it's all about and what your mandate is? I sure can. Thank you, Stefan. I'm glad to be here and really happy that uh, CIUT and the Green Majority are interested in finding out more about the Water Docs Film Festival. Uh, this is a program of the charitable nonprofit organization called the Ecologos Environmental Organization. Our mission and mandate and focus is on water. And so the Water Docs Film Festival is a 
um, program that we use to reach out to people and help them to understand all the issues surrounding water and how important we live on a water planet, how important water is to every aspect of life on this planet. So um, using uh, film as a storytelling tool uh, helps to raise awareness and uh, connect people close, more closely with water and um, encourage them to protect it, to respect it. And um, yeah, that's our, that's our mission. Amazing. Um, and and, we, and what, what's interesting about this is that we actually had, uh, you know, another representative from the water docks join us right at the beginning of, of, of the lockdown uh, because because uh, because uh, because it was it was just like about to come out. Uh, it was just happening right around then. And obviously, you know, it, being in theaters right now is not exactly possible. So can you can you tell us how you've managed to pivot and and still being able to you know produce this kind of programming you know despite COVID? Sure. So we were totally ready to go, as you mentioned, two weeks before our opening night, which would have been a, a physical film festival held in the Hot Dog Cinema in Toronto in March, uh, two weeks before the lockdown happened because of the pandemic. And so we were devastated, but we knew that because our program was together already that we at some point wanted to remount it. And at the time we were unsure, but we thought we might be able to remount it physically in the fall. So we, put out the word that we were just postponing, not canceling. Uh, so the fall comes around and of course we still can't meet physically in, in physical spaces. And so it was decided uh, late summer that we would um, just pivot and try very, very much to get the whole film festival remounted in a digital version. And that's been a really big learning curve for us as I'm sure anyone who is in the event planning and live events and festivals space understands that um, the learning curve is, is quite a process to um, get your head around uh, moving something from a physical location and to make it just as engaging and just as wonderful online. So that is what we're really working towards. And um, yeah, we'd love for everybody to come to waterdocs.ca. That's our website. Check out our schedule. And uh, yeah, we hope to see you at the film festival. Great. So, so let's talk about the festival itself. Um, is there is there any any movie that, or documentary, sorry, that you are extra excited about? Um, or can you talk about the, the types of films that are available? Sure. Um, so of course, being the lead programmer, all the films are my favorite. Um, I can't pick one. <laughs> that would just be uh, that would just not not be very kosher. So I will uh, I will say that I love all of the films and I want everybody to come and see all of the films and enjoy them. They're fabulous. Um, I think that I would like to really talk about our opening night on Wednesday, November the fourth, because that is also an evening where we are going to present our our annual Water Warrior Award. And this year we're presenting it to Captain Paul Watson, who has been uh, a, a hero of the high seas. Uh, he founded the, he co-founded um, Greenpeace. And then after that, he founded the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. And Sea Shepherd has been um, around since the 80s and working hard to uh, look after our, our, our oceans for us. So many things happen on the oceans because the ocean, the, the one world ocean is so vast. So um, 
that is an, an amazing um, a feat. And he founded that and worked in it for decades. He's been an environmentalist all his life. And uh, so we're, and, and he's Canadian in case people didn't know that. Um, so we're very, very, very happy and honored to present him with our Water Warrior Award. And that will be happening on Wednesday, November the 4th. We will also be presenting a film called Watson which is his life story. So if you're interested in him and the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, please come on opening night. And that will give you just a small taste of the rest of the festival. And then we want you to hang around for the whole festival and see everything. Um, and so that's why I'm going to say right now, our festival pass at just $40 is completely worth it because not only can you see all the live streamed events that we're going to do, Afterwards, we'll be putting recordings of the live streamed events up online as well, so you can rewatch them. Or if you can't come at the time when the live stream is happening, you can see it afterwards with all the Q&A sessions and panel discussions and everything else. And all the films will be available. So our festival pass allows you not only from the 4th to the 8th to see the live stream stuff, but is also allowing you to the 15th, which is the following Sunday, to go back in and look at any of the films, all of the films, all of the live streamed events, the recordings of them. So that is your best bet. And we really would love you to come and enjoy the whole festival at your own leisure. Because remember, the only thing we can't provide for you is the popcorn. You have to bring your own popcorn. The, uh, well, in the very least, the popcorn then is uh, significantly cheaper. You, uh, the money you save on popcorn could basically go and uh, buy the whole, the whole pass. Exactly. And you know what? You don't even have to dress up. You can come in your PJs. Because who's, who's going to see you? You're going to be in the comfort of your own home with your slippers on and whatever. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, that's so great that you're supporting uh, Sea Shepherd, actually. A, a person who worked for Sea Shepherd is one of the people I actually credit for it, sort of pushing me into the world of activism a little more directly in my third year of university. Uh, mm. So I'm fascinating to hear more about that uh and so if folks are like uh myself or anyone else wants to get uh, involved uh or attend uh how can they do it well you can come to our website which is www.waterdocs.ca and that's our landing page and then from the landing page you can go to the schedule and you can find out exactly what's happening on each of our live stream event days uh over the course of the fourth to the eighth of November and um, we will be having conversations with filmmakers and um, uh, specialists ex um, ex experts in different areas we will be um, having shout outs to our community partners um, as as we did with as we will with Sea Shepherd and different community partners in the world of water and water conservation and um yeah we want everybody to come along and join in um also to uh, sign up for our e-newsletter because you can get all the information uh, from our e-newsletter about all the stuff that ecologus is doing uh, our facebook page which is at water docs please like us um our instagram which is at water docs film festival we have lots of great photographs that come on there and and um, infographics and all kinds of stuff about water and please follow us on our new Twitter account, which is at WaterDocsFF. So if you happen to be following us on our old Twitter account, which is at WaterDocs, please follow us now on our new Twitter account, which is at WaterDocsFF. Um, what else can I say? Uh, we use the hashtag ActionForWater, hashtag ActionForWater, 
hashtag WaterDocs2020. And um, we would love for people to be involved with us uh, beyond the film festival. Of course, we want you all to come to the film festival, but please check out our website because we have lots of ways to engage uh, around water. We have um, a special on there right now called Water Stories, where we accept people's stories about water and, and some event or uh, occurrence or special engagement that people had with water in their life at some point to tell us that story. And we will put it on our website and um, other people can engage with that. Uh, so that's one thing. And um, we always are looking for volunteers. We have a great team of volunteers, but we always want new engagement from uh, a diverse group of people. So if you're interested in volunteering with us at WaterDocs, please uh, send us an email to volunteer at waterdocs.ca. And we'll, we'll make use of all of your ideas and all of your wonderful skills and talents. <laughs> Amazing, awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much. Uh, again, uh, so for people who join, it starts November 4th, is that correct? November 4th is opening night. That's our Water Warrior Award evening. And then we have something happening on November 5th, November 6th, November 7th, and November 8th. Please again come to waterdocs.ca, check out the schedule. And as I said, the $40 pass is your best bet, but you can buy tickets separately for any of those events that are happening as well. But, uh, oh, and we also have uh, a free event, which is uh, screenings of our uh, student award-winning films and projects from our Water Ducks at School program. So they're little short films that the class has made about a particular issue they were interested in to do with water and their watershed. So please check that out. Those, that is free and you can get free tickets for that and that will be available on november 4th as well awesome well thank you so much uh melanie howe the lead programmer and festival manager of the water docs film festival uh thank you so much and good luck with the festival thank you stefan cheers